0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Let's Talk Surgery podcast for RCZ. I am your host, as always, Gregory Carter, and with me, good friend, co host, Ceci Albrecht.
1: I'm fine, Greg. I'm particularly excited today because, um, as some of our listeners may know, I'm a pediatric surgery registrar, and we've got one of my bosses on today.
0: How can we not know? You tell us that every single show and everyone that comes here, you try to make them a pediatric surgeon. So, yes, we all know you do pediatrics and I know you've been buzzing up of course it is been buzzing about this for a while normally I introduce the guests but as this is your territory please tell us who we've got on the show today.
1: Thanks Greg Um, so I am delighted to have on one of my bosses and an excellent trainer Mr Philip Hammond who has such great experience in humanitarian surgery and has kindly agreed to come on today to tell us about it so how are you this evening Phil?
2: Hi, thanks very much. Um, yeah, I'm 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 good. Thank you.
0: Welcome, Phil. This is part of our global surgery uh, series. We had a couple of episodes previously. And it seems to be a pediatric surgery theme around this. I've got to get some adult global surgeons on, on the podcast. But welcome, Phil. And it'll be it'll be great to hear about some of your experiences over the years, which will come to you. Usually on the podcast, we try to know the individual behind the message. So who is Phil Hammond?
2: Well, thanks very much for having me. Yeah. Um so Yeah, I'm Phil. I am a paediatric surgeon here in Edinburgh. I have an interest in thoracic and uh, oncology particularly, but I guess, as Cessie's already alluded to, paediatric surgery is much more than just one small specialty. It's a whole specialty. Sorry, Greg, you're going to have to listen to this all the way through. But, um, and I uh, live in uh, a little village in the Pentland Hills. I'm married to Deborah, who's a GP in Livingston. I've got two kids. 13 and 10, one of each flavour. And I like uh, cycling and running in the Petlands. I'm active in my uh, local church and I enjoy my motorbike.
0: Oh, interesting. Motorbike, dot, dot, dot. Tell us a bit more. <laughs>
2: well, no, it's mostly for commuting. I know uh, okay. talking to healthcare professionals, it's probably very unwise to admit a motorbike. But uh, <laughs> I enjoy it. And I like going to the West Coast and stuff. It's, it's good fun.
1: Yeah, nice. it's really nice. cool. Um, fun fact, on my first day at work, I saw him pull up and I'm like, who is that? <laughs>
2: Irresponsible individual, I know.
0: <laughs> Living life on the edge, I, I do like it. So what we try to do next is delve into the individual a bit more. I'm sure there's more to you than you've disclosed already. So here's some quick fire questions, unprepared, that I will pose to you. So, question number one. I think it's the it's the obvious question that everybody that heard Phil Hammond, Philip Hammond was coming on this wants to know. Philip Hammond, are you related to the former Chancellor of the Exchequer or to the comedian from Have I Got News for You?
2: Sorry to disappoint. No, no relations. I'll um, be much less funny than
0: the latter and much less rich. <laughs> really Fair enough. Very humble of you. Question number two. You've talked a bit about your faith. Now, are you uh, part
2: of the church choir <laughs> no i'm not a part of the church choir i was a little treble back in my dad de- back in the day there H- we go so yeah there's, there's always something to impress thanks greg
0: yeah it's all right <laughs> <laughs> if you were to play a musical instrument and you might already what would you play
2: oh no i spent many years trying to play the flute disappointing not in my area of expertise at all uh i just wasn't i was. Just didn't practice, basically.
0: Okay. Uh, so, I'd probably play okay. the guitar. Okay, very nice, very nice. That's a nice, sexy instrument uh, to play. Keeping with the music theme, if you did play music in your theatre, and Sesse is going to be a witness here, what would you play? <laughs> um, well, if it was all about me, I'd play lots of
2: you two, at the sort of eighties, nineties days, um, but. Uh, in fairness, you know we're never really allowed. To. It's all the the And I'm thinking of one in particular whose name shall uh, remain nameless. Who plays music very loud. So it's not really our choice. Oh really? You are
0: needed to decide what you play in your theatre.
2: Yeah. Unfortunately. Oh
0: come on! In the world of adult surgery, that would never. Until happen,
2: they please. until they design a uh, you know a sterile way of turning on. I suppose Alexa might be able to help <laughs> with that in the future.
0: Fair enough. Next question. Around the time of this recording COVID-19 as a pandemic, part of our restrictions were homeschooling. <laughs> Phil, how did you do with homeschooling?
2: Yeah, again, uh, not one of my areas of, of uh, thriving. Uh, it turns out that despite trying my best with adult education, kids is very, very different. Uh, <laughs> motivation, both for me and, and the kids, not easy. But they did really well, I have to say. It's not easy, but they did, um, they've been, I think the second lockdown was easier than the first, probably because I was less stressed about it. I think my expectations were
0: mellowed with time. Very good. If Noah's Ark became a thing now, what one thing or one person that is non-family would you like to have on Noah's Ark with you? Um, A
2: Bono. I don't (laughs) know. You'd never be short of a word or two, I'm sure, from Bono's.
0: Touché, touché. That's a pretty good answer, actually. Someone else came on and said Barack Obama for a conversation, so that's, that's fairly similar. And final question from me, what is your single biggest inspiration?
2: Ooh, well, I suppose I suppose my faith, my family, and things that I'm excited about. Um, I, I never want to lose the passion and excitement for different things. I, I'm Probably a bit like my son, what I'm passionate about seems to change week on week, but uh, <laughs> I love, love being
0: excited by, by lots of different things, yeah. I like that. I, I keep saying the final question, but it's not really. Rumour has it your new hospital. For those listening that may not be familiar, the paediatric sur- paediatric department, I think, in, in Edinburgh has moved from a building from the 1500s to a fancy, spanking new building where they've got a rocket launcher in the middle of the foyer, is that
2: correct? Yeah, so yeah, we're due to move next week. I think it's actually meant to be a sort of a, a fanciful take on the Scott Monument. But yeah, it could it could pass for a, for a starship. Yeah, I like that. It's where all the kids play while they're waiting to, for me to catch up with my clinic times.
0: <laughs> I bet you're waiting to have a go at it, right?
2: Yeah, definitely.
0: Yeah, I, I should say. Of course. <laughs> okay, uh, that's all the fun bits done with. So let's get to new. Your journey from medical school to, to where you're now. So, Just give us a flavour of, I know you didn't go to Dundee University, us medical school in Scotland. So what subpar university did you go to and how did you end <laughs> up doing paediatric surgery?
2: Well, it's OK. My wife went to Dundee, so hopefully I'll get hey. some
0: for that reason. You do, um, you
2: do. Yeah, so I, I did arts A-levels. I uh, didn't really know what I wanted to be. And so I did arts. And so I came to Edinburgh, actually, to do pre-med um, uh, and then did medical school in Edinburgh. I was then, um, I then did basic surgical training in Edinburgh for a few years and sort of had a bit of experience with several different things, including colorectal surgery, actually great. And then at the end of the basic surgical training, I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I wanted to do something different for a little while. Um, I wanted a bit of adventure, uh, work in a different environment, work outside fitness, um, I, all those things. And I was interested in trauma as well. And so I um, I joined the Royal Navy for a few years and uh, had a really good time. The teamwork, the banter was fantastic. I got to know some really good people. People who weren't weren't medics, and it was just really nice to um, to, to, to get to know uh, other people from different environments. And clearly, there are there are other people who are much better qualified to talk uh, about the current surgical and military surgery. But uh, also, I joined the forces in the early two thousands and did um, general duties at about the time when uh, other conflicts were around the world were um, were kicking off and so so in iraq and and I was in uh, Sierra Leone as well, where there were effectively uh, child soldiers running riots and so i so so I had some experience of uh, of trauma but i had 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 a good time. I then decided I wanted to do pediatric surgery um and in fairness my wife to be wasn't too excited with me being away for seven months at a time and so and so I left the forces and i um, uh, started climbing the, the pediatric surgical training ladder, initially in, in London, and then Newcastle, and then Glasgow, and then a year in uh, Auckland, New Zealand, Starship Children's Hospital, and then back to Glasgow, and as uh, so a consultant now for eleven years. And the last six years have been in Edinburgh, and uh, I suppose there's a bit of a bit of trauma. I suppose I, I was conscious that. I still felt there was a bit of unfinished business in trauma. I still had an itch that needed to be I don't know, scratched, um, and I uh, so, so I was keen to to do a bit more trauma surgery. I suppose there was also um, a, a difficult, challenging case um, in Edinburgh with a penetrating thoracic trauma, which sort of whetted my appetite again as well. And another about that sort of time it's about sort of late two thousand and sixteen. I was also reading the news and I was really aware of. I suppose the humanitarian catastrophe that was opening up in in Mosul in northern Iraq, um, and I just wanted to help, I guess. Um, and so uh, I, I uh, looked at looked at um, uh, yeah being involved with uh, with humanitarian surgery to see if I could uh, provide um, or, or help in any way I could. I suppose I was conscious that although I'd had some trauma experience, I, I remember in the forces. You're being involved with with some trauma and stabilisation and repatriation of patients, um, I suppose they have a, a duty of care to try and provide a good service for uh, for the army and and in my case navy and Royal Marine personnel. <laughs> I remember I remember when I was you know, when you're learning resuscitation strategies. You remember that idea of the nomenclature of uh, of doctor ABCs. You've got to remind yourself to check for danger before you check for responsiveness and then ABC. Well, <laughs> certainly when when there's gunfire you don't have to remind yourself that there is danger about and i suppose uh, clearly that that's over the subsequent couple of decades there has been you know, huge changes in um in trauma management partly because of um the experience in, in the military thankfully i didn't find myself in this position but for uh, medics uh, in the forces clearly you have to make sure that you focus on controlling the catastrophic hemorrhage before worrying about the abc so you need to Make sure that you can get the you know get a 200k on, for instance, and and drag them out of trouble before you then worry about whether they're still talking to you. Yeah. Um, and that, that time period can be a, a lengthy one. Yeah. So, but but I was I was conscious that that's what I um, I wanted to explore whether uh, I could help in a humanitarian environment.
0: Great. I think it's it's quite interesting when you. When you listen to your story, you know, it's it's fascinating how you've had a breadth of experience from, you know, help doing arts, pre-med, through to medical school, and and the concept of a pediatric surgeon in trauma, and then uh, humanitarian efforts. I just want to take you back a little bit to just get your reflections around some of the variation in practice or differences between your humanitarian work or your little, you know, your brief stint in the military and, and what you face in your day-to-day NHS uh, practice? What are your reflections around some of the, the stock differences that exist between both practices?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, that's a good question. I guess I wouldn't underestimate the stresses and strains that we all face in the NHS. And actually we have to be pretty flexible in all of our jobs, don't we? Um, and and also I suppose the obvious difference of of acting within the resources that you have available and and that can be in the NHS as, as, as well as uh, in the humanitarian environment or um, you know ensuring that you're uh, you have situational awareness in the military as well and I guess I would say in the military obviously a lot of the focus um, is on providing you know, western standard care um, to People in the military, stabilizing them uh, with damage control, surgery, damage control, resuscitation, and then exfiltration and, and repatriation back to the UK or, or other countries to, to have that ongoing um, care um, uh, provided by experts. And, um, and I suppose in humanitarian work, it's not quite so, uh, it's, it's not quite so, such a clear structure of different echelons of care. You often the patients um, come sometimes having uh, a sustained an injury four days previously, or sometimes two hours previously, or they've literally just walked off the street. Um, and so, and obviously then you can't repatriate them. So you don't really, uh, you don't have an, an easy exit. So yes, there's the sort of the general surgical uh, stabilization, um, damage control approach, and general surgical approach that probably would be more familiar with. And then, but, but then it's also, you know, in fact, a large amount of war surgery is uh, is uh, orthoplastic work, a lot of uh, debridement, an awful lot of um, delayed primary closure, um, external fixation, fragmentation injuries, uh, burns, uh, some amputations. So it, it, there's just such a huge variety. I remember when I, the first sort of experience, I suppose, in the humanitarian world was um, in 2017 when the WHO were keen to try and replicate some of those military um, principles of of trying to provide care as close to the point of injury as possible and close to the time of injury as possible um, in in Mosul. And they were aware that that ISIS at that stage um, controlled a lot of Northern Iraq and Syria and and for several years um, were in in control of Mosul, uh, which is a huge city, uh, sort of second city in Iraq. uh, it would they would try to use those individuals as as a sort of human shield? So in two thousand seventeen or late two thousand sixteen into two thousand seventeen and into eighteen, actually, they the Iraqi forces um, and coalition forces were trying to what they called liberate um, the area and, and and in Mosul city, ancient city that involved street street fighting and it, it was difficult because I, a lot of these civilians were. Uh, were trapped in their buildings and if they tried to escape there were snipers on the roof to um to stop them and so a lot of unbelievably they would often you know aim at uh, children's heads and pregnant women's bellies and so uh, it, it's pretty sobering um but that would certainly uh, th- often that would be the the sort of the the dribble i suppose of of Uh, Of casualties that would come to our hospital, which was between five and 10 kilometers south of the front line in in various states. Uh, And then, of course, the alternative was that sometimes in the evening after a day of operating, we'd have some tea. We'd be drinking sweet tea, um, chatting with other Iraqi doctors and and nurses. 10 o'clock at night, you'd hear helicopters going overhead and you'd hear explosions in the distance. And you didn't really know whether that would mean that you were going to have a busy night or whether the target was actually a different side of the city and that the casualties would go elsewhere. Or sometimes you'd have, uh, you know, two or three hours later, you'd start to have 10, 15, sometimes 30 patients come in. And so it was, it was certainly certainly challenging both from a, um, a security point of view, um, but also from a you know, from a surgical point of view, it's, it's a huge stretch. Um, and uh, so although a lot of it is is the debridement um, primary, clo- to low primary closure, delayed primary closure, a few amputations. There were also um, the, you know, the fragmentation injuries, the uh, evisceration of bowel through the anterior abdominal wall. Most of it, the vast majority, was uh, was penetrating trauma as opposed to blunt trauma, which I suppose is what we are much more, what I'm much more familiar with um, in the UK. And you know there was blunt trauma as well. But so yeah, so I, I suppose that's when I was really just aware of how green I was. I learned a lot in that first deployment with learning from other expatriate surgeons, and doctors, um, but also colleagues from Iraq who have often you know, grown up for the last 20, 30 years, dealing with a lot more penetrating trauma than, than I will see in my career. Uh, therefore came back and I was keen to try and formalize some of that education, rather than just um, having learned informally about things with, with, with various uh, through other organizations.
1: Wow. What- an interesting and inspiring journey. It certainly puts things in perspective. And I feel the times I think I've had a difficult shift, I should just reflect. On what that might mean to somebody else on the other side of the world in a conflict zone where a difficult shift is hearing explosions and wondering if you're going to be up all night and what on earth you're going to get so that okay. really puts things in perspective now you've um, of course mentioned your experience in Iraq um what other countries have you traveled to and with which organizations
2: yeah so I, I so I, I did another uh, deployment certainly um in in Mosul um but then say I, I did the the STAY course, uh, run by David Knott, the surgical training for steer environments and the war surgery course in Geneva from the International Committee of the Red Cross. And I, I was really impressed by some of the students I met in in Mosul, particularly those who had mm-hmm. worked for organizations like the the, the ICRC. Um, and so I, I was keen to, um, to, to to follow up. I'm just conscious, I suppose, that I, I really, I feel like I'm at the beginning of a journey. I'm I, I'm not the, I'm no, uh, no finished article. I mean I, I've learned and I'm so grateful for um the, the training that I had through um through David Knott and colleagues um uh, Carlos so, um and many others um and their generosity and their keenness to um to train you know surgeons um in the in the whole breadth of the specialty, including things that they're not so familiar with. Um yeah. for me the cesarean sections or the orthoplastic work. And so uh, so I, I i then applied to work with icrc in um, in uh, Maiduguri in, in uh, northeast nigeria and borno state and um, where people will probably be aware of of Boko haram um, and the islamic state for west africa of west africa province who control a lot of borno state as part of the, the Lake uh, chad conflict um certainly for over a decade now and and again the, the city of Maiduguri. Um, was uh, under the control of uh, of Boko Haram for uh, for a few years and 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 although the city is largely uh, no longer now now under the control of the um Nigerian government forces um, there are large areas that that really struggle in terms of security um and so i was then based in uh, in an icrc hospital which uh, thankfully only dealt with trauma, so I didn't have to worry so much about obstetrics on this occasion. But I was just really impressed with their governance, yes, and their security and their their mandate. But but, but still, clearly very different from what I was used to. Um, uh, on this occasion, it was it was also very much working with um, with Iraqi, uh, sorry, with Ni- uh, Nigerian uh, doctors and nurses, physiotherapists, and. It was a real privilege to work with them. I, I, I suppose the ICRC are very alert to the potential criticism of, of the whole sort of white or Western saviour uh, complex of yeah. neocolonialism. And, and so they are very keen on not just substituting and, and providing uh, surgical capacity and and skills and uh, resources, but also in capacity building. So trying to, rather than create a dependence, but... but uh, build capacity in the local population and country um, to to, to provide that same care. So so, so that was a large part of of the work in in, in Mediguri. And clearly, uh, a lot of patients came from outside of of the city centre. Again, a a lot of the work was um, debridement, delayed primary closure, skin skin grafting. But like I was saying um, earlier, it's not just the... Uh, the fragmentation injuries or thracoabdominal injuries that it's also the 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 ongoing care and i said uh, it's, it's things like um you know how are you going to yes you've put an x fix on but how are you going to close that soft tissue defect uh, in the leg and or yes you've divided a lot of the the fingers from a gunshot wound to the hand but now you get need to get soft tissue coverage and and, and i'm sure plastic surgeons probably i think it's all very old school but the the stay course was really good at at allowing me to have options like using a a a groin flap uh, to to get coverage on the hand you know based on the on the superficial circumflex artery and so so i'm in in no way an expert but it was allowed you to have options to try and to allow these injuries to be dealt with in a safe uh way to let people get back to to working life to support their families so it was a really uh you know formative time uh, not just from the general surgical perspective but also from that from that more uh you know broader uh, experience uh, and also you know I, I was also able to you know experience things i'd never seen before. So, so in some internally displaced persons camps there was it would be a, a typhoid perforation not something that i you know i've ever seen before um, yeah you know, often you'd have a dilemma with this post patient that got a temperature, it turns out it's malaria, and it's, not, it's just not something that I see every day at all in Edinburgh. So it's just, it's really good experience for making me think broadly, I guess.
1: Yeah, I mean your experiences sound fantastic I mean um, for those of you listening you may or may not know that um, Greg and I are actually Nigerian stock and malaria is basically for us like having a common cold you just take some anti-malarials um, and you get over it
0: <laughs> it's a pretty pretty inconvenient illness to have <laughs>
1: it is but it is so it is so much more common the approach to it um, that is true. back home um, that is true. in that you know it's something you recognize and it's it can have devastating consequences but it's something that we do have that experience treating i um, do have um, one question
0: Ceci, for me just yes. for phil with your stint in nigeria i'm just you know i, th- I think uh, a lot of the work you you describe is is mind blowing some of the things that you've got to do and continue to do and eternally grateful for all the work that you colleagues do but just on a totally different note what was the one cuisine when you were in Medigree? and good pronunciation by the way um what's the one thing you were served on a dish that you thought oh that's different but I enjoyed it
2: okay um well when you say on a dish I mean (laughs) you'd have um (laughs) there was a lady at the front of the hospital who would have uh, bean curd there'd be like a a boiled egg in bean curd in a plastic bag <laughs> does that ring any bells that was it new ring me. a bell
0: yes it does ring a bell it's...
2: <laughs> and uh, but then there was also the really really spicy meat that I have to say was fantastic and sometimes on a on a Friday um, before people would disappear off um, to the mosque for prayers often you'd have uh, a, a very a, an amazing meal of uh, of, uh, of spicy meat I, I don't know what sort of meat it's probably
1: best not to think about it <laughs> well that's fantastic it does make me long for home just describing the cuisine now um you've talked a lot about um, what you did uh, on a clinical aspect day to day while you seem to relish the challenge of learning on the job and stretching yourself as you said that must have been quite stressful um were there times that you had you know times that you faced severe stress and uncertainty and how did you deal with that
2: yeah, for sure. Um, I, I guess, if I'm honest, that one of the greatest stresses was actually before the first deployment. Um, you know, you can imagine suggesting or having that discussion with my wife about whether I, I quite fancy helping in Mosul, and you know, there was a lot of a lot of soul searching, a lot of you know, with a young family, is that appropriate?
1: Yeah.
2: Um, you know, a lot of prayer, a lot of dilemmas. So so yeah, there's there's a stress from a security point of view, and and you know, I had a, a bit of background, I guess, in in the forces. Um, but I suppose going into a, a, a region of conflict, when you're part of Her Majesty's Armed Forces and you've got yeah. a load of uh, a very uh, you know, heavily armoured uh, Royal Marines with you, surprising how safe you can feel. Um, mm-hmm. And yet, of course, that that isn't the case very often for humanitarian organisations. They're very dependent upon acceptance of. Of their presence there by the parties to the conflict, and and so you know there are very clear um, security rules. But yes, there is there is potential risk there, and uh, so so I suppose the security side of it is a stress. You know, on the on the road to, to Mosul, there would be lots of um, checkpoints. You know, about twenty checkpoints in order to get to our uh, compound. Um, you'd be wearing body armor and, and helmets on the on the travel in the militia would stop you but you weren't quite sure what allegiance they had so, so, so yes yeah, there's no doubt there's a, there's a there's a stress but also I suppose as part of an organization like the ICIC uh, which has you know robust governance arrangements and and, and and tries to ensure as much as possible that there is safety for its personnel sometimes it does fall down and, and you'll probably be aware that a couple of Nigerian midwives in, in Maiduguri had been um, taken hostage and were ultimately killed. So it's not purely theoretical. And the ICRC are, are very aware of that. And I suppose that's partly why I was keen to be involved with an organisation that I respected and felt had had those governance structures and worked so hard to persuade all parties that, that they were providing a, an important role for people who were affected by armed conflict. I guess there's also the stresses of of being away from home and the stresses of trying to deal with things that you're not very expert in you know so i suppose it's it's one of those things often you would go from working a situation that you are familiar with and i suppose it's trying to be bold to 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 progress to do things that you know what to do you know what the right thing to do is you but but you also have to be bold enough to do the right thing in the right moment and I guess there are some things that you can that you know you, ne- you need to have to deal with you need to have to stop know how to stop bleeding you need yeah. to be able to control contamination um in general surgical you know, principles but then there are other things thankfully that you do have time to, to to look up to ask a friend so so clearly there are some of those uh, flaps and, and uh, skin grafts. Yeah, I've got a little book where I write stuff down, uh, little aid memoirs. There's an amazing amount on the internet, for instance, that you can, uh, and, and the ICRC has an incredible, you know, resource um, there as well. I suppose you know, emotionally as well. Yeah, it's it's hard being from away from home. The, having said that, the, the teamwork of the people you're working with really sustains you. And I, I, as I said before, you know, I've met some incredible people, both from, um, the, the country I'm working in, but also um, expatriate staff as well, people who have, you know, incredible experience, incredible resilience and know how to have a laugh, you know, and, and that's just so important, you know, drinking sweet tea, as I say, you know, with your colleagues um, uh, in, in a dusty, hot, sweaty environment um, is incredibly, um, you know, bonding and energizing and, and you have a shared experience, I suppose, that um, that in fairness, when you come home, it's difficult to share with because not everybody will have had that experience or have shared those anxieties at two o'clock in the morning when you get a mass casualty situation. Yeah. So and also, I suppose, you know, exercise is really important. Um, I'm able, even when you're on a compound, you can run round and round the inside of a, a blast wall. Um, and, you know, and even eventually you can encourage some of the uh, Iraqi doctors who are initially laughing at us um uh, to to join us eventually and it was just a really good bonding experience so um also I I suppose more recently you know some of the internet connections have have, have been incredible and so you can actually sometimes it was a bit dodgy the reception but you could sometimes FaceTime home and and then you can feel that you're still um I suppose a little bit up to date with family goings on but also you can talk through some of your anxieties and stresses of the day with your wife and and so she can feel involved with that as well. And, um, yeah, so I think it's a whole mixture of different things, but probably a lot of things that we also rely on you know, here in the, in the NHS when we've had a stressful day.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think it's so important to have your tribe around you. And um, with regards to the tea, uh, for those of you listening, if you want to come work for Phil Hammond, please do, because between theatre cases, he will make you tea, and he makes a great cuppa. So um, you've mentioned a little bit about um, David Knott and the STAY course um, earlier in the conversation. What was it like um, working on that course? And um, it, do correct me if I'm wrong, I believe you've progressed to instructor. What, what's that like as well? Well, again, it's
2: a, it's, a, it's a huge privilege really to work with people who have a lot more experience than, than, than I do um, and to learn from them in all of their different specialties. So I suppose that that course um, it's just a great starting point, partly because you can meet new people who have a, a similar interest, and it's amazing how many opportunities come up um, from just uh, from those sort of informal conversations. But also, you know, it has a sort of structured approach. So that then, you know, the first couple of days um, we'll, we'll cover a lot of the general surgery, uh, abdominal, um, you know, tracheostomy, cricothyroidotomy, um, thoracotomy uh, type things. Then uh, we'll move on to um, I think the the, sec- the the third day is a, uh, a day on, on plastics, so a lot of uh, burns, um, skin grafts, various flaps. Um, the next day is a lot of orthopaedic sort of external fixation. I mean, bit often in these environments, um, the orthopods are, are much more keen on, on internal fixation, and, and but obviously with a very contaminated wound, it, it, it's really at risk of, of infection. Um, and also just in terms of training, it's, it's a whole different ball game to do internal fixation. So for, 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 for those of us whose who's background isn't orthopedics, um, yeah, we're very much encouraged to do external fixation, um, but also that obviously covers where that doesn't work, although which we often try to um, retain, um, retain the limbs, so occasionally you do have to perform amputations as well, which is again something that, that prior to that you know, it wasn't part of my day job. And it also covers a bit of um you know, head trauma eye trauma ent max facts all uh, uh, all taught by uh, by experts in their field but who often also have a huge amount of experience in the austere environment and then um and then the, the last day um we're taken uh, through some uh, obstetric uh, emergencies um and uh, and cesarean sections and the like and and you know i'm just hugely grateful really for the experience of both meeting um, you know, people uh, but also of the things I've learned and and part of the reason why I, I love to I'm so grateful for for David and, and colleagues to to have me on that course is it, it reminds me um, of all the things I still need to learn and keeps keeps things a bit more fresh so that hopefully next time uh, I'll have a bit more of an idea about how to to cover that soft tissue uh, defect or uh, or whatever I whatever I'm struggling to to debride uh, a scalp wound.
0: It's, um I think, listening to your story, all of the work you do, and the journey, the selflessness required for one to leave the comfort of Scotland, Edinburgh, to go to an area with humanitarian crises, to put yourself in the face of danger whilst trying to help others is inspiring. I commend you and, and others to do that. Just as we come to the close of, of the podcast, really to get a sense of what's next for for those of us who this you know this is the first we're here and your story if i'm inspired in addition to this day course how else can i get involved to walk the path that you've walked in so what advice would you have for a colorectal surgeon or or any other surgeon out there thinking you know what i want to be a little bit selfless i want to go out there and help what can i do
2: well, that's that's generous of you. I think to say selfish because there's also a lot of selfishness. I I love it. I love the breadth of surgery. I love um, uh, meeting new people in new environments. And so I, I I've <laughs> I love it. I guess there are there are certainly challenges along the way. And I guess the difficulty is that it's, there isn't a sort of formalized path clearly for you know, colorectal surgeons. I'm conscious that you know, there are other bits of the body to take out. You know, not just the right or left colon. So, so it's it's hard to, um, to to get that experience in the UK. Um, I suppose it's helpful to have had some you know, military experience or humanitarian experience. And the difficulty, the challenge, often with these organisations is they often want you to have had some experience, um, or they want you to have been a surgeon for a couple of years, a consultant for a couple of years, uh, or. But there are other ways. So, so clearly signing up to or registering with you know, UK Med was really influential in my pathway. Um, again you're doing applying to do courses like stay course it, it turns out there are lots of other people who who know of other organizations so that the, that who hospital that i was involved with uh, it was an australian organization that had been tasked to do that and um and so uh it, it's a lot about as well about who you know and and putting yourself out there and, and saying that I'm I'm willing to do this. How can I how can I help? Are there some environments in which I can help? Is it worth um, exploring whether there are links in other hospitals in in other countries in in Tanzania or in Nigeria um, that you can um, help and maybe link between your hospital in the UK and a, a and a hospital um, in another country, maybe in a, a low income country. And so I suppose just building up those links is, is just really, really important. And at the moment, I think it's just it isn't very formalized. But it may be that with time, um, if things may become uh, more so. Yeah, of course, I and
1: mean- we really um, appreciate the opportunity to collaborate even in the NHS. I think that's one thing I love about paediatric surgery, how there's a humongous MDT component because of the breadth that we cover. So getting the opportunity to work with other people from around the world must be mind-blowing. Now, I just realise in all this, um, you've talked so much about your experiences. Um, Was there one particular interesting case that you had to deal with that completely took you by surprise? Uh,
2: I guess it's always tempting to think of the dramatic fibro-abdominal um, you know, the, the, the uh, damage control stuff and yeah. uh, the mass casualty situation. But I suppose in terms of a, a learning uh, case, I suppose I I took over from a, uh, in Meduguri, I took over from a, a surgeon who had been there for a, a few months um, from Ethiopia. Uh, my first afternoon by myself uh, in the hospital, or the only surgeon in any way, um, I was asked to see somebody in the, uh, I say, emergency room, although uh, that may conjure up images which may, may be inaccurate. Yeah. Uh, with somebody who had a, um, who had been shot with a uh, an arrow um, through the neck, um, horse uh, couldn't speak, but certainly was making horse sounds, sort of a lot of upper airway noise. Uh, and with the sort of expanding hematoma on the left side, and so I thought, well, actually, this isn't something I can wait for my relief to come uh, in a few weeks' time and deal with. So, oh gosh, so I suppose it's the it's the case of, of working from what you know and what you're familiar with. So uh, we do you know, um, quite a lot of open central lines in neonates, uh, not just percutaneous ones, and so uh, you know we explore the neck. Um, I'm Try and dissect. Try and keep the the strap muscles intact because I don't know whether there's going to be a, a damage to uh, esophagus and trachea and whether I'm going to have to interpose something between them. I, I, it turns out that I, I, I sloop the the vessels. Uh, I'm able to repair the the hole in the in the uh, artery, uh, and that most of the ar- most of the arrow is going through the larynx uh, rather than through trachea and esophagus. But of course, it's barbed. It's not just like a little arrow that sticks to the window like my son would shoot. This is a, a proper hunting arrow. And so I can't pull it out. I have to push it all the way through. So I chop a bit off and then I push it all the way through. Um, and then I'm again, it's about situational awareness, I guess. Um, and then in a position that we can't we can't ventilate this person overnight. We don't have an intensive care unit. I'm worried about postoperative swelling. He's already got a hoarse voice and so I then think okay well what's the safe thing to do here i i, I we do a, so i, I do a, a tracheostomy to finish the operation um and and they are not things that was the first tracheostomy i i did or or um outside of the uk and um it's it's just being bold enough to go from what you know and what you're comfortable with to 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 moving on to what um is out of your comfort zone but you you know what has to happen um so, but I love that situational awareness. It's not just about what can be done. You also have to apply it to your situation, and it may not be the way experts would deal with it in in the UK or or, or elsewhere. But, but, but we were able to decannulate him a week later, and and he went back to his farm, and that was a fantastic uh, outcome and, and a real relief to me.
0: Incredible, uh, talking about. Uh, how was your day today? What what did you get up to? And I, I turn around and you know, the, the most interesting thing that will happen in an A in Edinburgh compared to, to that experience is is mind-blowing. So um I'm not uh, sure how I would have coped in that situation myself, but I well know, done to you.
1: It's just casual, take an arrow out of a neck, just because it's Tuesday. Why not?
0: <laughs> it definitely wasn't casual. <laughs> and you talk about sleep in the carotid artery and you know as a colorectal surgeon i'm thinking that's not casual either listen phil you you might not want to hear this you might not accept this but you are amazing uh the selflessness and and also the bravery to do what you do uh, is truly amazing and i'm grateful for you sharing your story with with us ceci has the pleasure of listening to you in theater most days i don't and most of the audience or, or our listeners won't so thank you for sharing your story and, and thank you for the work you continue to do uh, for for the audience and listeners. If you have any questions or comments for Phil, you can email us at comms at rcsad.ac.uk that's C-O-S-M-S at rcsad.ac.uk. Ceci, to your boss, I'll, I'll leave you to thank your boss and close the podcast because I can see you smiling from ear to ear. I think they call that a Cheshire Cat. Take it away.
1: Um, Well, Phil, thank you so much. You've been absolutely fantastic. Do you have any final words before we say goodbye to you?
2: Well, I'd just uh, love to say a big thanks to you, but but also a really big thanks to so many people who have let me do this. So colleagues in Edinburgh um, who who let me swap my own calls and my family. um, So so a a huge, huge thanks um, to them as well as huge thanks to to colleagues who I've had the privilege of working with um, elsewhere. And I suppose um, I would just encourage people to keep your excitement about the breadth of surgery um, and uh, don't wait for the perfect timing as that time will never come. Seize the day and and, uh, go for what you want.
1: Fantastic. Um, Well, I don't think anything we say could top those very wonderful words of wisdom. So guys, until next time, please stay safe, be kind to each other, and it's a bye from me and a bye from Greg. Bye, guys. Bye.